Blessed Charles of Austria, an emperor, a king, a husband, a father, a saint, a new book by our good friend here, Charles Coulomb, who's going to talk to us about why Blessed Charles of Austria is important to our time. Uh, Charles is an author of a number of books. He has a weekly podcast. He writes for Crisis Magazine. Charles Coulomb, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be back. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Where are you broadcasting from? I am in the beautiful little town of Trumau in Austria, south of Vienna. Perfect. You're 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 on the scene right there. Yeah, I'll say. And we have real autumns, unlike my uh, my long time in uh, Southern California. <laughs> well, Texas here is looking pretty cold, and outside my window, I'm seeing some changing leaves. So we've got something here. All right, we're going to talk about Blessed Charles. Uh, I've gained a great devotion for him in the last two years, um, partly because I'm a father of many children, as he was. Uh, and then also I'm just realizing that the collapse of Christian society has off has gone with the collapse of Catholic monarchy. And it's remarkable that this great emperor represented all that was, I think we, I can say this, all that was good and wholesome about Catholic Europe and what the the Catholic monarchies should have always been. I think it's just God put a cherry on top of, of all of this by giving us blessed Carl, or as you say, blessed Charles. So do you mind if we go ahead and open up with a, uh, our father, Pater Noster? Sure. That'd be grand. All right. You want to say the second half or you want me to do the whole thing? I'll go along with you. Go ahead. You going to say it? I'll do the second half. Okay. I'll do the second half. All right, perfect. Oremus. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, quies in celi sanctificator nomen tuum, adveniant regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum redobus hodie, et vedenobis debita nostras, sicut et nostri minimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, Sed libera nos amaro. Amen. Amen. Nomini Patris et Filii. Spiritus Sancti. Amen. You know, I love listening to all the different uh, language groups pray in Latin, and I think one of my favorite yeah. ones are the Germans. Their Latin is is very articulated, unlike the French. And <laughs> <laughs> which probably well, I... shouldn't surprise us. No, it's it is true. Every uh, every country pronounces it differently, mm -hmm. and of course, there's the Irish American pronunciation, which is very particular. It might be the worst one, uh, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. <laughs> I do the Texas one. People say, "Oh, Marshall." I, I don't know. I, I get confused. People say I sound like a Texas hick on the Latin, and then other people say I sound Italian, and I don't think that's. I, I like the hick Texas hick Latin, and I'm going to go with that. And I think that's a step up from the Irish American Latin. <laughs> No doubt. I, I mean, well, I, I don't want to bag on the Irish too much. They have enough troubles of their own in these days. Right. Well, I wore my Irish tie today. I couldn't <laughs> well, find an Austrian good. tie, and I was like, man. Well, I, uh, I actually had one, but I uh, I ran here literally from class. Yep. So I, I didn't put on my black and gold striped tie, yep. which I would have done for this. That's what I was looking for. I'm going to order one. I'm going to order but one. I or if I can get one that has rep imperial double-headed eagles, that'd be... That would be the king. best. That'd be the best. And I would. I am wearing my Gebetsliga pin. There you go. So, 
I, I did remember something anyway. I'm not entirely out of it. All right. Now, who is this blessed Charles of Austria? I've noticed lately everybody says blessed Carl. That's been like the new thing. But your book says you put the Charles on there. Probably because that's do. your name. Uh, not because it's my name. <laughs> it's just because it's Carl in English. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, these things are funny. It's like uh, Franz Joseph, who is his great uncle and the yep. emperor before him. In the older books in English, he's always called Francis Joseph. Mm -hmm. But in the newer books, he's always Franz Joseph. Right, right. I, I mean, I don't know how. The, yeah, I guess the older books anglicize things a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they definitely do. And uh, it was kind of a going back and forth over uh, saying Carl or Charles, Carl or Charles, yeah. Carl or Charles. I'm not quite sure why I settled on Charles, but. Right. It uh, it's it's he was a fascinating character and it was a um, an exciting book to write a difficult book to write in some ways because uh, one has to come to terms with a lot of things that uh, both as moderns and as Americans we probably don't want to come to terms with mm -hmm. but such is life you know uh, what you said earlier about his being father of many children such as yourself well very true. Uh, and not only did he have many children, but he had them over a span of time. You know, he began his very first, uh, who, uh, I had the pleasure of knowing somewhat, the Archduke Otto. Um, uh, he, um, he was born in 1912 when, uh, Carl was the heir to the heir to the throne and everything was going great. Yeah. The, uh, he didn't live to see the eighth and youngest Elizabeth who was conceived in exile when everything had fallen apart. Right. And the children in between were conceived during and been born and began their raising during every, every permutation of life in between the one and the other. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's the great is the greatest response to the question. How can we possibly have children in times like these? I don't know. Look at Carl and Zeta. Yeah. And of course, his wife was quite as remarkable as he, as he was. Uh, they were very much a team. And what you said earlier about him representing all that was best in Europe was also true of her. Yes. I mean, it, they were almost like a poster couple mm -hmm. for uh, for the cream of the history of European monarchy and of, of European Catholicism, lay Catholicism. Um, yeah, I'm going to put a picture of them up here on their wedding day. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? It is. I mean, it it's is. just everything sweet about this uh, from, you know, both their, her, her dress, his smile. I mean, he's just a happy groom. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, it's just it's a lovely picture. And it, it captures how much he loved his wife and um, just a man receiving the sacrament of matrimony. It's just a, it's a joyful thing. Yeah. And, and he it was a funny thing. Uh, he proposed to her. They had known each other as children. And then, of course, they, they did what, you know, the various things. Uh, they were thrown together again because they had a, uh, a distant relative in common. Uh, the great, she was the great aunt of the one of them and the aunt of the, the great aunt of the other. Um, but they met again because of her. And the rumor then came about that this, uh, this uh, bourbon prince had proposed to her. And he immediately ran to his great aunt to find out if this was true. And she said, well, no, it's not. And his response was, well, I better ask her before someone else does. And Especially that's, when you got bourbons running around. you got to be careful. 
No, there are a lot they of could, that boy ball. They could, they, yeah, they could get, they could get the pretty ones. But she was one herself, so you see, yeah. she was a living advertisement for the Bourbon family. Right. Uh, it is a, her background was very interesting. Uh, he was a Habsburg, of course, and his mother was a Saxon princess. She was a Bourbon Parma. Her father had been one of the uh, a duke of a small area in Italy, was overwhelmed by uh, cavalry and those guys in 1860. But her mother was a Portuguese princess. Of the older line of the family that had been pushed out in another liberal revolution in 1830. So when uh, they were going into exile, she asked the British colonel who accompanied them when they were going into Switzerland in 1919. Uh, she said, Colonel Strutt, my family have been driven out of France, Spain, Italy, and Portugal. I came to Austria, and now I have to leave. To what country do I belong? And poor Strutt could only sit there, you know, go, oh, <laughs> don't know what to tell you. Right. And then uh, at the same moment, Carl said, uh, after 800 years, meaning the, the rule of the, uh, of the Habsburgs, and then he sighed and said, uh, God's will be done. Yeah. Imagine Which, being at the end. Now, I want to I ask you, this is the question that I've been burning to ask you for a long time. They went to. They went to. He 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 ended in a Portuguese territory, correct? Yes. That's where he died. So yes. I want to ask you a Fatima question. Okay. You know the apocryphal intro to the third secret is that something about the faith always in Portugal, right? Mm. And also. The idea that it, you find this in the early church fathers, you find it in St. John Chrysostom, that the restraining fo force of Second Thessalonians, the catacomb in the Greek, yeah. that that's the Roman Empire. And then it gets spiritualized into, you know, perhaps we could say the Greek Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. There's always this imperial coupling with the papacy um, as the Roman Empire gets spiritualized and sanctified. And Blessed Carl's the end of that train. He's the caboose. So is is thus, this... Thus far. Well, so far, yes. Um, so when we read in Scripture, and if we, if we do identify it as the Roman Empire, the imperial office, I mean, people don't know this, but in the Roman canon in the Latin Mass, at the Te Igitur, it used to be in Rome, they would say the name of the Pope, and well, the local diocesan bishop in Rome, that was the Pope. But they'd also pray for the imperator in the canon. That's correct. In the canon. And, uh, so this is a very important office that he holds. Do you think that there's sort of a conjunction with Our Lady of Fatima's apparition in 1917, and then soon after the heirs of Russia, and then the downfall of Blessed Carl and the Habsburg family? Is this prophetic and leading to the nonsense that we see in the 1900s? Well, you know, I, I, I would say so. I mean, I, obviously, I'm not the, the best interpreter of prophecy. But having said that, you have three things happening at the same time. You have Fatima. You have, as you say, the, uh, the overthrow of, uh, of Emperor Carl and his going into exile. You also have, in the same year as Fatima, the overthrow of the Russian empress who in their way claimed to be the continuous of Byzantium, the other 
expression, right. if yeah. you will. Third Rome, yeah. The Third Rome, and they both used the double eagle, mm-hmm. which was the symbol of the later Roman Empire. The, the eagle looks east and west. Yeah. Uh, that, it certainly does have a very prophetic feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that what replaced both of them was horror, mm-hmm. utter and complete horror. And the fact, the fact that, you know, it's one thing when you overthrow a regime and you replace it with something else. That's, it's a, it can be unfortunate to say the least, but that's something. One which, what it's replaced with is something so evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, as both the communists and the Nazis and the communists replacing the Nazis or in most of the former uh, Austrian territories. Uh, and then, the, if you might say, the third wave of Marxism, uh, what we're seeing really today, uh, you know, infanticide everywhere, uh, the, the uh, uh, collapse of gender identity. Uh, it... it, it <laughs> Again, I'm not an apocalypticist by nature. Yes. But even if these are not the last days, it's certainly in the end of an era yep. uh, to be replaced with we know not what. Now, if it's not the end of the end of time. Remember, at Fatima, a lady said, eventually Russia will be converted. Our my, my Macron, Trump, there'll be a period of peace. No mention of the end of the world there. Right. So, so it may be that what we're seeing is the end of the... Uh, the end of the post-Reformation civilization. Who knows? Right. right. Uh, one of the things you find with prophecy, and this is certainly true with Fatima, is that they tend to make sense after they've been accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we look at all the prophecies of the Old Covenant, and we're like, well, how come they didn't know Christ, the Messiah, would be the Son of God and rise on the third day? It seems obvious. Because we're living afterwards. Yeah. I mean, just again, to take Fatima as an example, uh, Our Lady says, well, this war will end, but if people don't straighten up and fly right, another and worse will break out in the reign of Pope Pius XI. Well, there are two ways you can look at that. It was absolutely correct. But if you had known the prophecy of Fatima, and you and a lot of people did then, it really was not that unknown in, right. say, 1920. Along comes Pius XI. Oh, my stars, it's Pius XI. Head to the hills. Right. Well, yeah, except that's 1922, pal. And you're going to be sitting up there until 1939. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the thing is, when you look at these things, you always have to bear in mind that uh, prophecy is not given us, frankly, to act like a stock report or a racing form. Right. That's not the point. What it tells us, not unlike Eucharistic miracles, frankly, is that God is in charge. He does know what's happening. Everything we're, everything that we will encounter, however terrible it may be for us personally, is not outside God's plan or God's understanding. And there again, Carl and Zeta are great examples because they literally had everything taken from them, everything. They went from a life of privilege, the like of which most of us will never know, to a life of privation, the like of which most of us will never know. I mean, well, I hope the way things are going, <laughs> we, we may, we may, we may understand the uh, understand the second state a lot better than we do now. But 
this is something that has to be borne in mind. Um, we tend, where well, there's an old Arab saying, every man thinks his fleas are gazelles. <laughs> and we tend to make our own immediate issues. Oh, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Yeah, yeah well, don't say that. Don't ever say that. Yeah. It could be worse. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to follow up on that. So, you know, Our Lady of La Salette talks about the church going into eclipse, and Archbishop Vigano lately has been using the language of eclipse. Uh, He he did it just this past past week, actually. Uh, Repeated use of eclipse. So, when with the idea of the eclipse is it's hidden, it falls under darkness, but it doesn't disappear. No. And so, we all know that in an apocalyptic eschatological setting that can and probably will happen. But what about the Habsburgs and what about the Imperial office? Could we say it too goes into eclipse and it comes back? And then along with the prophecy here, great French monarch, how much French blood needs to be in that monarch? Well, there's, uh, there's a whole uh, a whole ton of questions. <laughs> boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh. Hardly know where to start on that one. Well, yes, it's certainly true that eclipse doesn't mean destroyed. Um, if you think of the hundred years of the pornocracy in the 900s mm-hmm. of the papacy, when the papal throne was occupied by a weird succession of thieves and perverts, right. uh, it, it, things could get really, really bad. When you think of the fact that from 476 AD, when the last Roman emperor was deposed in the West, to 800 when Charlemagne was crowned, that was a pretty long interregnum. Now, there were still the emperors of Constantinople, but the imperial idea never vanished. And it was more an idea than anything else. I mean, similarly, we touched on the Third Rome. Now, of course, I'm not. I'm not Russian Orthodox, so it doesn't have the same right. the same excitement for me that it might for others. But uh, and I'd like to point out that the wedding between the Byzantine Emperor's niece and the Russian Tsar that created that whole idea was negotiated by the Pope of the day. Just so I'd point that out. Right. People right. forget that. Hey Charles, real but, quick, you're I hear you perfectly and I see your face, but you're not moving. It's like your camera's frozen. Gosh, that does happen. Unfortunately, happen. yeah, being here in Austria Sure. We can roll with uh, it. It's fine as long as everybody understands that you're not standing really still. <laughs> I'm stiff and emotionally yeah. unavailable. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can hear you fine. So I would just say keep going. But people are asking, and I, I was a little confused, too. So you keep going, talking about papal arrangements of imperial offices. Yeah. So uh, so the thing, the thing was kept. The Holy Roman Empire itself, per se, died in 1806. Yeah. Uh, what happened was that uh, Franz II of uh, the last Holy Roman Emperor uh, was afraid that Napoleon, who had proclaimed himself Emperor of the French, successor of Charlemagne, he would try to, to take it. So two years earlier, he had declared himself Emperor of Austria as a sort of escape hatch, so he'd still have an imperial title. Right. And then 1806, he abdicates the throne, he declares the empire dissolved. Now, that was kind of a funny thing. What year was that again? 1806. That was kind of a funny thing because, you see, you can't really dissolve a a country just because you've abdicated it. Right. So 
a lot of the uh, the legalists would tell you that the uh, the empire continues in a, as a strange sort of disembodied form. Right. Uh, you then had both the czars and the kaisers moving along, the Austrian kaisers, until World War One. Uh, it's interesting that the prayers for the Holy Roman Emperor uh, that you'll find in the um, uh, Roman Missal until the 55 changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, during Holy Week, he was also prayed for an addition of the canon. Good point. He was prayed for uh, one of the collects in Good Friday, in the Good Friday service, pre-55. One of the, um, and then a section of the Exultet on Holy Saturday when they do the uh, the blessing of the new fire. Uh, there were prayers to the emperor, and those were kept in the Roman Missal until 1955. They were said for the Austrian emperor in in his dominions until 1918. Yes. So I, I had a conversation with someone the other day. They said, well, no, he wasn't really the Holy Roman Emperor. But my counterargument was, well, he is in the Missal. How would you... How would you understand that? Well, yeah. I mean, as I say, they continue to say the same imperial prayers for the right. Emperor of Austria. I mean, you're both right in the sense okay. that, per se, he wasn't the Holy Roman Emperor. But in a very real sense, they, uh, the Habsburgs inherited all of the, symboli- the symbolism and the appurtenances of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, that's why, for instance, to this day, the headquarters of the Deutsche Orden uh, of knights, the Teutonic knights, which you'll remember, are here in Vienna. Uh, and similarly, Santa Maria dell'Anima, the uh, church and college and uh, sodality in Rome, which was always under the Holy Roman Emperor, went under the, whole, the protection of the Austrian emperors. Right. So you're, he's right in a very strict legalistic sense. You're right in a more general symbolic sense. And it's interesting uh, during World War II, the uh, biggest resistance to the Nazis here in Austria were not the socialists who were collaborators uh, and not the communists who were a small minority, but the monarchists. Mm-hmm. And their largest group was called O5. Uh, I'll have to excuse myself. You're breaking up in front of me and looking very strange and pixelating and so on. Uh-oh. Can, can you still hear me clearly? I still hear you clearly. I still, yeah, well, you're, you you look great. You're frozen, but you're in a great pose. You're not in a weird pose. And I, <laughs> I can still see me and hear me on, on my side and everybody, everybody, but someone says, yes, we got a, a decent frame to freeze on for you. You look very dignified, almost stern, right. but solemn. Oh, boy. So you're good. All right. Well, as I say, it was called O5, and that had three different meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, all at once. Uh, you see, when the Nazis took over Austria, the real name of the country is Österreich, which is spelled O-Umlaut, that is O-E, right. S-S-T-E-R, etc. They changed the name to Ostmark with no Umlaut. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Oh, yeah, that was the name under the Nazis, was Ostmark. So they took the Umlaut away, and the resistance name O-5 could mean O-E, as in Österreich. Ah, but there are two other meanings. The five could mean A-E-I-O-U, the five vowels, which is code for a whole bunch of different Austrian phrases all about how wonderful Austria is. Of course. And uh, in German and Latin, I mean, there are literally, I've, I've seen seven or eight of them. I won't, I won't bore you with them all, but uh, that's the, the second meaning. But the third meaning, O5, if the Archduke Otto, the son of Kaiser Karl, the oldest son, had been Holy Roman Emperor, 
he would have been Otto the Fifth. Ah, okay. So uh, you, you see these these we we tend to forget, especially because we're used to thinking of government and all that strictly in terms of power. Uh, we tend to forget the importance of symbolism, uh, of of uh, well, in a sense, political theology. Yes. We 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 yeah we we we've we've kind of lost it. Uh, and yet there are certain senses in which our own United States are rather similar to old Austria-Hungary. Uh, in the sense that we have no ethnic or religious cohesion. They had more religious cohesion than we do. That's for sure because they were. 70%, 75% Catholic, but uh, we have no 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 more ethnic um, uh, cohesion than they did. And of course, you'll always hear people saying America is more an idea than a country and so on. That's a debatable issue, but certainly it was true about Austria-Hungary. Hmm. Uh, it was more of an idea, a shared dedication to something than it was an ethnicity. And so, in that sense, there, there's, there's a lot we can learn in the United States from Austria-Hungary. Uh, it's interesting, too, that over 100 years after it fell, the areas that were incorporated into other countries, Romania, Poland, Ukraine, Serbia, and so forth, the areas that were Habsburg are very, very different still from the areas that weren't. Mm. How so? Uh, in, in all sorts of ways, culturally, politically, uh, attitudes toward governance, uh, in countries that, in the area, in parts of countries that were Habsburg, they tend, on the one hand, to be less distrustful of government, and on the other hand, there tends to be less corruption. Hmm. Now, by the same token, very often the voting boundaries and the, the election maps will follow the old border almost exactly. So, for instance, in Poland, uh, where they recently had a presidential election, the uh, areas that had been Russian or Austrian went for the president. Mm. The areas that were had been uh, Prussian went for his opponent. Yeah, yeah. not surprising. And if, and if you, yeah, it's yeah. not if you, if you know the background. Right. But it's interesting to see how all these years later, the so-called Habsburg effect, as sociologists are calling it now, is still very, very much a part of the lives, even of nationalities that were seemingly the keenest to join their ethnic brethren. Mm -hmm. Well, they were their ethnic brethren in some ways, but they were very different in others. And that's something that it sometimes has taken over a century to, to realize. Right, right. Okay, so speaking uh, of ethnicities, how much French blood needs to be in a great French monarch's body? That's a good question, and you know it's a well, hard maybe. One get, to maybe can you say something about the great French monarch? I think maybe half of our audience may not be familiar with it, even though I talk about it often. Well, basically, the it's a uh, going back to the Middle Ages. It's a motif in Catholic prophecy, mm -hmm. the toward the end of time, and, and again, there are many variations. So what I'm going to say will be true for a number of them, but I'm sure you'll be able to find somebody who said something different. I'll say that now. Right, uh, but. Generally speaking, toward the end of time, uh, the idea is that there would arise the last Roman emperor. In many cases, he's held to be the successor, not just of Constantine, but also Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne, of course, wasn't French. He was a Frank. Right. But then the Franks conquered France and gave him the name. It was Gaul before. See, these things get very, very confusing when you ask about the amounts of right. blood. Right. Because a Frank is actually Germanic. 
right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And the the uh, uh, the amount of intermixture in European royal families is so much that you would be hard to find a European royal who didn't descend from the Bourbon right. or from the Habsburgs. Yeah, it, it's just it's the way it is. But uh, the the uh, idea then was that this individual would restore the empire. Now, mind you, there had been other people who did that. Theodosius the Great restored the empire. He was the last one to rule what had been Rome. Uh, Justinian, Charlemagne himself, Otto I, uh, Emperor Sigismund, who ended the Great Schism when there were three popes. We forget it was the Holy Roman Emperor who put an end to that, not the right. church. He, he, he got tired of it. <laughs> he said, all right, guys, you had your fun. Right. Then there were two. Now there's three. I don't think we're doing this anymore. Yeah. I, I, I don't really care for it. So uh, you had various other attempts to restore the empire. You even, uh, touching on our Russian friends, you had Alexander I, who was probably the only Russian czar who really took that kind of role seriously. Um, that idea, however, has always been hovering around as this very powerful symbol, a very powerful, if you will, psychological motif in the European mind. And people like Napoleon, and I'm sorry to say Hitler, also uh, took advantage of it to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, even the European Union, even the United Nations to a degree, is kind of a, a ripoff of that sort of idea. And by the way, uh, it's a yearning for that unconsciously, I suspect, that uh, explains why the post-World War II popes were always so happy about the EU and the UN, because there was a yearning on their part for a, tempor a supranational temporal partner. Yes, the but, but oh, it's I, I naturalistic. Didn't it a smart idea. I didn't say it was a smart idea. <laughs> I just, remember, understanding why something is doesn't mean you agree with right. it. It just means you know why it is. Right. I mean, I I, I can tell you why great dictators come to power. Right. It doesn't mean I think it's a wonderful idea. It would have been great <laughs> if we had one. That's that's not my point. But people will respond to certain stimuli, even popes, because they tend to be people more or less also. Mm -hmm. uh, they will respond very similarly to to this sort of stimuli. In, in the West, one of the biggest things to damage the imperial idea was the feud between successive emperors and successive popes. Yeah. Um, if you remember Dante, he was a great apologist for the emperors of his time. He was. We always, yeah, we, we always think of his, uh, of his uh, Inferno, Paradiso, and Purgatorio, the Divine Comedy, but his De Monarchia yep. is the great statement of the imperial idea. Yeah. I, wrote a, I wrote a doctoral paper on that document. Ah, well, well you know what I mean then. Yeah. Yeah. So I've read it. It's it's an important book, and it it also points out something uh, interesting, not entirely germane perhaps, but interesting, and that is that very often in feuds like that between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, yep. later on, their feuds don't seem so great. So I, I uh, when you look at the Guelphs and Ghibellines, they both proceeded from the same basic first principles, what they fought over was their uh, practical application. And if you could have somehow brought them to life during the time of the Reformation, so-called, right. I'm sure they would have been united vis-a-vis -vis Luther. But 
contrary wise, if you could have brought Luther back together with the uh, with Ignatius Loyola during the French Revolution, I, I, I think Luther might have might have felt a little bit differently about what he accomplished. Yep. <laughs> but. That too, though the Reformation uh, really smacked the uh, the imperial idea very, very strongly. Yes. Charles V, uh, who was the emperor at that time, he was another example of someone who was trying to restore the imperial idea. Uh, he came very close, yeah, uh, but it broke him. Yeah, and he had his run-ins with the Pope. No, he sure did. He sure did. Uh, I always say that if it hadn't have been for the sack of Rome in 1527, we never would have had the Council of Trent. Right. right. Uh, not again. That doesn't mean I favor sacking Rome. <laughs> I, I, I have to. <laughs> when you say things like that these days, you always got to immediately I rush. Know, people like to it. clip your audio. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, cool. Coulomb's come out for sacking Rome. Well, yeah. no, that's not my point. But uh, he did have his run-ins with the Pope of his day. And if you examine them in detail, you'll find sometimes he was right, sometimes he was wrong. Yeah. Uh, almost as though he were a human being like the rest of us. Because, you see, we look at all these people with 2020 hindsight. Now, to return to your original question about the great emperor at the end, uh, this person who will, according to these stories, accomplish what Charles V and Charlemagne and Constantine and all these guys wanted to do, what in his way, our blessed Charles wanted to do, blessed Carl, um, because he wanted to restore the concert of Europe. Um, this emperor, toward the end of time, will succeed where they all failed. But, this is a big but, uh, after he comes to power, supposedly the Antichrist will arise. Right. And many versions of the story, and there will be a great pope too, who has different names, the angelic shepherd and so on. And he'll do for the church what the emperor is doing for, sta for the state. Uh, and then the emperor will go to war with the Antichrist and be defeated. And that, that, uh, that will be the end of him and the beginning for a short period of uh, the reign of Antichrist. Yeah. Now, uh, you can look at this prophecy in several different ways. You can look at it as something that will certainly happen before the end of time. Uh, there's certainly no mention of it at Fatima, so if it does come to pass, presumably it'll occur after that period of peace, so perhaps usher it in. Who knows? Right. Uh, you can look at it as a recurring motif in history. Uh, if you remember Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien was really a master, at consciously or not, of grabbing historical motifs. So his the figure of Aragorn, for instance, starts out as sort of a Bonnie Prince Charlie figure, mm -hmm. and ends up as Charlemagne. Yeah. And well, he's eclipsed. That's why I like this language. Aragorn is eclipsed. Yeah. He's the hidden king. He is the hidden. He's king. there. But you can't see him. You can't see him, and he does come out eventually. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there are little remnants and bits and pieces to remind you of his existence. Right. And the loyal despite not knowing where he is, despite not knowing his existence, despite having no real hope of seeing his coming in their time, nevertheless remain loyal to the idea, yes. uh, which, remember, in the Shire had degenerated just to the idea of saying, when the king comes back right. for some impossible, improbable thing. 
the other, the other interesting parallel there is uh, the siege of Gondor, which starts out very much like the siege of Constantinople in 1453 mm-hmm. and ends up like the siege of Vienna in 1683. <laughs> even even down to the Rohirrim coming from the north and the bugles sounding, which was exactly happened what happened when King Jan Sobieski and the Poles came riding down to Vienna. <laughs> it, there are motifs in history, mm-hmm. and they repeat constantly. They're never identical. It's never precisely the same. But there are similarities. And uh, it's one of the comforts, if you will, of the study of history. Mm-hmm. So but, how will or will the eschatological emperor come back? And will he be a Habsburg? Could he be something else? Oh, How's this... How's this going to happen, Charles? I have no, I have no <laughs> idea. I mean, I, I don't know, and I don't know when it'll happen. It could be now. It could be five hundred years. It could be five thousand years. I have no idea. Right. What I, uh, what I can say, however, is that you'll know it when it happens. Yeah. Uh, which, which sounds like a, uh, as you used to say back in my far off sixties childhood, it sounds like a cop out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it's true. You, you can't. Until these things happen, you can't really know. But when they do happen, you'll know. There'll be no question. Now, mind you, uh, as I've said that none of the the, uh, attempts at really restoring the empire ever came to pass, but that doesn't mean they didn't accomplish things. Mm -hmm. Emperor Sigismund really did end the Great Schism, and we only had one pope again. Uh, Charles V didn't bring back the, the great Respublica Cristiana that he hoped, for, hoped of and dreamed of, but he did found the universities of Mexico City and Peru. And the, uh, the settlement of the Americas started in earnest under him. He was the first man of whom they said, the sun never sets on his empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, when you look at Blessed Emperor Charles, was his life a failure? No, not not by a long shot. Quite apart from the fact that he and his wife, who's a servant of God, she's up for beatification. Uh, him, doubtless, and she, very likely, are in heaven. Yeah. Which that's the first triumph. If that was all they'd ever done. The, the, that's it. That's it. They're in like Flynn, but it's not. Number one, they gave us an example. And not just of of a father and a husband, although that's certainly true. Not just of a soldier, that's certainly true. Not just of a ruler, that's also true. That if you study him in any of these areas, you'll be amazed if you study him in any detail. But he also was a tremendous patron for children of broken homes and difficult, uh, difficult families. His parents were very poorly suited for each other uh, and didn't really care for each other very much by the end of it. But not only did he stay on very good terms with both of them, he got the best from each of them. So he got his mother's very deep piety, deep devotion, but none of her dour disposition. From his dad, he got the the light manner, the humor, the charm, the the easygoing way of dealing with anybody, uh, but not the promiscuity. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, he, he, he was able to get from each of them what was best. 
And that's something that I think a lot of children of broken homes or difficult families, that's something that they need. You know, they need to be able to look at the, the estranged parents and get the both out of either of them. Uh, and the other thing it, it, it did was it made him very much a peacemaker in his family. One of the historical questions that kind of came up is that his uh, his uncle, Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the throne and was assassinated at Sarajevo, thus beginning the Second War, or the, sorry, the First World War, and his great uncle, Franz Josef, were on not terribly good terms for personal and political reasons. Mm-hmm. Franz Josef was annoyed that Franz Ferdinand had married morganatically, and he uh, disagreed violently with him over the future. Franz Ferdinand wanted to federalize the empire, and he wanted to reduce uh, Austria's alliance with Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fairly satisfied, although I could be wrong, and I'm, I'm always waiting to be corrected, that had Franz Ferdinand lived, he would have explored alliances with Russia and Great Britain. Mm. Um, and that would have been an interesting turn of events. Yeah. It certainly would have kept uh, France and Germany kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. But um, at any rate, uh, the question that came up was how did Karl manage to stay on such terribly good terms with both his great uncle and his uncle? and not become a third center of intrigue or, or anything like that, especially when you consider that his uncle's children could not inherit the throne. And he was inheriting the throne. Now, in any other similar setup, don't you think that Franz Ferdinand might feel some sort of resentment toward the nephew who was taking his children's place? But there was none of it. And I, and I think it's because of Karl himself. Mm-hmm. I think he had learned in dealing with his parents how to how to deal with a situation like that. The first thing you've got to bear in mind, I think, when you look at his relationship with those two difficult gentlemen, was that he loved them both. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. He loved his great uncle and he loved his uncle. He uh, agreed with his uncle politically, but he understood that his great uncle, having spent the better part of his life trying to accomplish the existing setup at great personal cost to himself was not really keen on fiddling anymore with it. He understood that. And he also uh, looked at the family situation of his uncle, which even though it was a morganatic marriage, it was a very happy one. Hmm. Franz Ferdinand and uh, Sophie were, were just an extremely happy couple. And he spent as much time as he could with them because he enjoyed that. That was what gave him his picture of what married life should be. And there's a, kind of a touching story um, in its accidents, not that the story itself isn't too touching, but one of the phrases came up in it. Uh, not all that long before Franz Ferdinand was murdered at Sarajevo, uh, Karl and Zita had, uh, din- had dinner with Franz Ferdinand and Sophie, which they did fairly frequently. So Sophie excused herself for one reason or another. And Franz Ferdinand said, I didn't want to say anything while your aunt was here, but I know that I'm going to be murdered. And there are some papers in my desk that I want you to have when the time comes. Now that was kind of weird by itself. What struck me apart from that specifically was simply the sheer domesticity. I didn't want to say anything while your aunt was here. Right. That, 
I mean, you just don't think of people like that having a relationship like that. Mm-hmm. If if you see what I mean. What, and, was, what was the faith? What was the Catholic faith of Franz Ferdinand? I've I've never heard anything about that. You haven't, and I can tell you a lot now, okay. much more than I could when I started writing the book. Okay. Uh, Franz Ferdinand. You, the only thing you ever hear about him, people will say that he was a difficult personality. He looks kind of fierce in all his pictures, uh, in the ones you see anyway. And you know that he hunted a lot. He was a huge hunter. Every house he had was filled with antlers. He loved hunting. That's all you know. And the, and the common mind is very misinformed. Franz Ferdinand was incredibly devout. Okay. He was especially devoted to the Sacred Heart. Not only when he died, not only did he have a medal of the Sacred Heart on him oh, uh, when he died, he was actually in the midst of uh, making the uh, making the uh, first Friday devotion. Ah. He was, I forget how far, how many Fridays he'd done, but he was doing it when he was killed. The other thing that's interesting, uh, Tyrol, the province of Tyrol, which is mm-hmm. now in Austria and Italy, but at the time was all in Austria-Hungary, uh, they are especially dedicated to the Sacred Heart yes. uh, because of Andreas Hofer and the Napoleonic Wars, and th- those things. Well, it so happened that in a town in Tyrol called Hall, H-A-L-L, uh, there was a barracks, and the barracks had formerly been, a, well, it could have been an armory, now that I'm thinking of it. It was barracks or an armory, one or the other, but it had been a monastery, and it was bought by Franz Ferdinand, and turned into a basilica and convent in honor of the Sacred Heart. Now, he bought it. It was being refurbished. It was due to be dedicated early in 1915. And he was scheduled as the patron of the place to be present for the uh, the opening. As we know, he was killed at Sarajevo, so he couldn't attend. Uh, the then Archduke Karl attended in his uncle's place because he shared his uncle's great devotion to the Sacred Heart. Um, so, to answer your question, he was not only politically astute, he was very devout. I see. That's um, good to know, yeah. Now, is this covered in your in your new book? Yep. Great. It's all there. Great. Uh, I, I learned, as I say, I learned a lot about Franz Ferdinand in the writing of the book. I learned, well, you know, honestly, any book you ever write, I don't have to tell you this, any book you ever write, you'll two things will happen. You'll learn all sorts of things you didn't know. That's the fun part for me is the research. The writing is a bit, you know, if I could just do research all the time and get paid for it, I'd be happy. But the uh, the second is uh, when the book comes out, you'll be inundated with facts you wished you'd known. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, one, one thing that came to my attention two weeks ago, uh, when, during the war, uh, Carl was always disagreeing with the Germans over the way things ought to be done. Time and time again, they would clash. And of course, he had no control. He had no power. So he'd say, you're wrong. You shouldn't do this. You're going to be sorry. They'd say, yeah, sure as what you know. They'd do it. They'd be wrong. They, well, they wouldn't be sorry. Ha, but they'd be wrong. So they came up with this great idea to knock Russia out of the war by smuggling a man named Vladimir Lenin <laughs> In, in, in a sealed in a sealed boxcar into Russia. Yep. Well, uh, Carl didn't think this was a smart idea. He thought this was really kind of stupid. And he said so in no uncertain terms. 
uh, they took no notice. They sent him. Uh, they sent him to Russia, but he wouldn't let him go through Austria, which was the original plan. That's right. So he had to go through Germany. Well, it turned out, and I didn't know this when I wrote the book. I know it now. They had a similar bright idea to destabilize Italy by sending some communist revolutionaries to Italy through sealed cars. But to do that, they would have to go through Austria. And so Carl said, no, you're not doing that. Well, that being the case, even though he was Italy's major antagonist during the war, I think he deserves some credit as the savior of Italy. Mm. What would have happened to the Italians? I mean, things were bad enough with the communists after World War I. What would have happened if they had gotten the equivalent of Lenin there before the war ended? Yeah. Yeah. And so the Italians could be very, very grateful to Emperor Carl. However, having said that, their uh, king at the time, Victor Emmanuel III, had one important thing in common with Emperor Carl and with the Belgian king, Albert. They were the only three heads of state who were at the front. They're at the what? At the front, fighting. They were mm. in the midst of the uh, of the fighting. Uh, and this was one reason why Kaiser Karl was very keen on getting the war over. Gotcha. Because he uh, he had seen it. He had been there in a way that not not uh, Lloyd George or Camonceau or Wilson or uh, or even uh, even the Kaiser had been. He had been right there on several fronts. And you know the 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 other um, the other interesting thing is that while he was at the Italian front at one point, he saved a soldier during a flash flood. The uh, the soldier in question had been wounded; he was kind of lame, so he was being used to uh, watch horses. This big flash flood fl- uh, comes right down this river, this uh, waterway, and the uh, the fellow gets swept up it, uh, swept up in it. And Carl, uh, then an archduke and a general, not the uh, not yet the emperor, jumped into the water and rescued him. At great uh, great risk to his own life, wow. and that's that's one thing too about Kazakar was that he was very brave personally. Uh, I don't know how many heads of state you could say that about then or now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even to have have these men out. Like you say, on the front, that's that's kind of the old medieval ideal. Yeah, leading leading from the front, right? And it's it's uh, it's interesting too that there was only one other future head of state who was at the front at that time, and that was the Prince of Wales, who would later be Edward VIII. How about that? Uh, he was uh, not only was at the front at the front, he saw a chauffeur killed in front of him. Wow which is one reason why he wasn't keen on uh, getting into war again. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us about the final, kind of the final descent, the last days of Blessed Charles of Austria? It's, uh, I, I heard it for the first time last year at the Blessed Carl Symposium that's here in Dallas, Texas. And it's, it's very moving. And I think it, it, it reveals to people the true sanctity of the emperor and the empress. 
It, it, it certainly does. Um, the backdrop, it's important to remember before we go in, into it, that Kaiser Karl was betrayed all over the place. Uh, he was betrayed by um, Karl Renner, the socialist, who would, of course, later collaborate, later collaborate with both the Nazis and the Soviets. A neat trick if you could pull it off. Uh, he was betrayed by his own uh, foreign minister, Count Chenin, R. Woodrow Wilson, uh, the French Clemenceau, who revealed the uh, secret negotiations for peace, his German allies, the nationalist leaders in his own country. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, had it been me, I think it would have made me extremely bitter. And it, I would think I would have hated my peoples. I really would have. Well, they made a better stuff than I am. Uh, they went into exile initially into Switzerland. Uh, a communist uh, fellow named Bela Kuhn took, had taken over Hungary. He was overthrown, and a regency was declared. So Karl decided that it was time to retake the Hungarian throne. He made two attempts. These were unsuccessful. So the Allies moved him and Zita to the island of Madeira. Now they did something else. While they were in Switzerland, they had had access to funds, uh, not just uh, their own, but also whatever supporters and allies and friends of theirs could get them. When they were in Madeira, the uh, Allies refused to allow anybody to send them money. That's important to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. the, when they immediately arrived, they stayed in a hotel, uh, Reed's Hotel, which is still there, uh, but they couldn't afford to stay there any longer. So, fortunately for them, uh, the uh, the uh, a Portuguese gentleman on the island lent them his summer house to stay in, free of charge. But, you know, it's a summer house. It wasn't made for the winter. And although Madeiran winters aren't that bad, most of the islands up in the hills, they are cold and foggy and rainy and he caught cold he already had bad lungs um, and he caught pneumonia and eventually killed him it took a long time for him to die and they had no antibiotics in those days so they tried all of these remedies which were horrific cupping and things like that just awful things what's cupping Same. oh they take a hot cup and put it on your on burn it into your back yeah. to uh, try to get the infection to lift away from your lungs. Mm -hmm. I think that's the theory of it anyway. Right. But it's it's nasty and very painful. And of course there was no there was no money for decent medicine. Mm -hmm. There hadn't been money for a lot of food. So I mean they they were just in terrible, terrible shape. Um and when it all the while though they did have the mass. Uh when he was well, he taught his children the catechism and things like that. Uh and in fact, there in Switzerland and Madeira was where the Archdugato really got to know his father, because as you said years later, you know when when he was uh, away at the war all the time, he barely saw him. And the ironic thing is that he was closest to his father at the family's worst times. But again, that shows you what sort of a father he was, because when he was there, he was very very affectionate, and his children came first. So. 
at any rate, um, he uh, expressed constantly a resignation of the will of God. He prayed a lot. Uh, he had no ill words for anyone. But the day of his death, as is often the case with people of this sort, was filled with signs and wonders, as you might say. He made the statement, and given the situation in Central Europe today, I think about a lot about it. I am suffering that my peoples might come back together. Mm. Uh, he repeatedly called upon the, on God and declared his willingness to follow his will. Uh, he said something very interesting to his wife the day he died. He told her, I have talked to the king of Spain. As soon as my funeral is over and I'm buried, get in contact with him and he'll take care of you. And she said, how could you possibly have gotten in contact with the king of Spain? And he said, don't worry about it. Just get in contact with him. I'm telling you, it'll be all right. So uh, one of the last things he did was he had a uh, little auto sent in to see him on his deathbed, and he was present for the death. And he was asked, well, you know, do you think you should see this? And he said, yes, it's important for him to see how an emperor and a Catholic dies. So he died. They had the, uh, the funeral there in Madeira, and she was able to get in touch with Alfonso XIII, king of Spain, who said, absolutely, I will take you out of there. And he sent a warship to pick them up. Well, the British threatened King Alfonso, and they said, you know, we're not letting them leave Madeira until she agrees to renounce the throne for herself and her children. And King Alfonso said, I'm sending a warship, and if you fire on it, you're at war with Spain. Now, Spain wasn't a very powerful country in those days, but seeing that in that very year, because Britain was so overextended, she'd had to back down in front of the Turks, the last thing she was going to do was get into war with uh, Spain, even though it was a, a big deal. So the Santa Elena shows up, takes them away from Madeira. They come to Spain. They take the train to Madrid. And then there they are at the palace. And um, she says, you know, I'm very grateful. But uh, why have you done this? And Alfonso XIII said, well, it was a very strange thing. But the night they told me that your husband was dying, I all of a sudden had the most bizarre feeling that if I didn't look after you, the same thing would happen one day to my wife and children. Mm -hmm. And then she told him what her, her husband had said. And they, you know, they looked at each other and kind of, well, okay. Um, and that, so that was the end of, of Emperor Carl. And it, but it was the beginning of uh, Zeta's successful attempt, you might say, to resurrect the brand. Mm -hmm. She first had to worry about educating her children, and uh, she didn't want to stay in Madrid. There were a lot of problems, and there there were tensions in the Spanish royal family, shall we say. So uh, Alfonso lent them a villa in uh, on the coast of Spain, where they lived for eight years. And then they moved to Belgium. And uh, Otto went to Louvain, as his younger brothers did, studied philosophy and all that. And also... They were closer to Austria, closer to Germany, and then they were able to, well, it's a whole other story. You read about it in the book. But uh, 
Zita herself, her long, long period of widowhood, is an, a very interesting story. The other interesting thing about that, about their relationship, is that um, – are you still with me? Oh, I'm here, yes. All right. You're, you've, you're, you look like the outer limits, honestly. It's amazing. <laughs> anyway, all pixelated and bizarre. Yes, it's good on this end. We're good on this end. All right, it's just the it's the Austrian Austrian uh, internet. Yeah, it could be my uh, I don't know my handlers at the secret police, but yes, whatever. It, it needs the intercession so, of Blessed Carl. Yeah, it could be. No, so what what uh, uh, what should happen though is that the first miracle that Carl uh, occur or uh, uh, accomplished was with a Brazilian nun, and her name was Zita, Sister Zita. So when his widow found out that that happened. She said, oh, yes, as always, he's thinking of me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, it, 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 uh, one, of the, one of the other things I touched on in the book, and I think it's, it's worth our consideration, especially uh, with the upcoming election, to tell you the truth, is the, uh, not simply his, his popularity after death uh, and the growth of his cultus since he was beatified, which, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense in Central Europe and Indeed, in the rest of Europe, and even in Brazil and Mexico, where there are a lot of Habsburg connections. But an interesting thing has been the growth of his popularity in the United States. Uh, they've just had on his last feast day, October 21st, uh, which is, by the way, the date of his wedding to Zita, not the date of his death, which is April 1st. Um, but they had the 16th shrine to uh, Carl opened up in uh, Jasper, Georgia, 16th Shrine in the United States. I I can tell you that I know of uh, at least a couple of other places that are applying Mm -hmm. to get the same same sort of treatment. You've got annual conferences, as you know, in Dallas. Uh, They're about to have one on my birthday, actually, my 16th birthday, November 8th. They're having a big uh, Kaiser Carl uh, fete in St. Louis, Ah. Missouri. Our Lady of Victories, uh, and of Are course Washington. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid the COVID monster is pretty uh, much keeping me stuck in Austria. I see. I, uh, I, I, no, I, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere at the moment. Uh, I'm in exile too, uh, just like Carl, only <laughs> yeah. in a much nicer place. At least you're in I exile mean, in Austria. <laughs> yes, exactly right. I'll tell you, it, it it there are much worse places to be exiled. Believe me, but. Uh, you know, you, you see this. You see also Washington, D.C., you know, Old St. Mary's. There are a lot of other... Uh, we have uh, two here, Charles. My parish, Mater Dei Catholic Church of the Fraternity of St. Peter. We have a, had a shrine installed last year to Blessed Carl with his relic. And do you know who, who did it? Whom? Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Ah, that's right. I did He's the that. one who dedicated the shrine to Blessed Carl in our church. So when you come in the... The church from the narthex, which is on the side, right to your right, are candles and a portrait uh, of Blessed Carl right there. And people pray. I, I go there and pray. And then there's another shrine in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the Anglican Ordinariate Church, St. Mary the Virgin. They have an altar with uh, the portrait of Blessed Carl over the the altar. So we have two Blessed Carl shrines within 20 minutes of us. In Texas, yeah, yeah, of all places. In Texas, of all places, and that, of course, if you go to San Antonio, Texas, and you go to the old Spanish Governor's Palace, 
you'll see the double eagle over the door. Mm. A reminder that Texas was under the Habsburgs themselves once. Yep. But uh, it, it's true. And, there, and, of course, the question that one asks oneself is why would he be so popular in the United States? And I think that there are several answers to that question. Uh, probably more than I'll give you here, but still. Uh, number one, uh, partly is the marriage and family issue. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're so under threat here. And to see someone in a position like his uh, being such a good father, such a good husband, yes. and as I pointed out, such a good son, um, we, we really need an intercessor like that. Uh, in terms of the American family. But there's more. And the more is that he represents a kind of sacrificial, self-sacrificial rulership that we simply don't have or have not had for a very, very long time, almost can't conceive of having, but in a sense yearn for. Um, I mean, if you look at our presidents, uh, probably... uh, Washington and Lincoln, and where you are, Jefferson Davis, <laughs> are the uh, the only uh, presidents who would think of as being, you know, right off as being willing to willing to uh, sacrifice themselves for their people. Uh, well, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt charged up San Juan Hill, and there were veterans among the other presidents. But I mean, by and large, you don't think of the president of the United States as being willing to sacrifice himself for his people. It's just not what we think about when we think of the presidency. Um, And Carl represents someone, well, who was suffering that his peoples might come back together. Uh, A little joke of mine is that the United States are the world's longest and most successful Oedipus complex. You know, we, we got rid of daddy in 1776 and we managed more or less ever since. But there is a sense in which we do yearn for that kind of leader, um, mostly subconsciously. But the idea of someone who would put his people over his own happiness, that, uh, particularly in an election year, that's really something. So, And also, given that we're faced right now with a great deal of civil unrest and the prospect of a lot more, whomever is elected, um, he went through all that. He saw his entire country collapse around him. So there too, especially in this very difficult time in our country's history, I think he's a very good patron, someone to pray to for, for help and, and assistance that uh, our country not go the way that Austria-Hungary did. Yeah. Um, it It's... It's interesting, too, that uh, during the war, Archduke Otto was in Washington. Uh, He ended up, you can read all about it in the book, I go on in some detail, but to a great degree, he's responsible for Austria not being considered an Axis power, Mm -hmm. but a victim Mm -hmm. uh, due to the the, uh, pull to the degree that he had it with uh, FDR. Mm -hmm. Um, And that... Uh, he was very fond of the United States, was Archduke Otto. He, uh, he traveled all over the country during the war, lecturing and so forth. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, too, that for a short period, 
the Empress Zita and the rest of the family lived first in, uh, oh gosh, what's the name of it? It's in the book. It's a town in uh, uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and also in Tuxedo Park, New York. Both houses to this day are called the Empress's Palace by the locals. And when you read some of the uh, local accounts of it, you'd think that the only real importance of Empress Zita was that she was fortunate enough to live in Tuxedo Park <laughs> <laughs> or, or in the other town. You know, wasn't it? Wasn't she fortunate? Right. <laughs> I, I don't want to say we could get a little provincial over here, right. but right. <laughs> the um, and of course, he was also he had a, a part in the uh, formation of places like the um, uh, in Dallas, the Cistercian Abbey. Yes. Hungarian uh, Abbey and also the uh, Hungarian Norbertines in Orange County. Yes. Uh, both in California, both of whom have played a large part in the uh, the history of the church since then. Yes. So it's not like this story is completely irrelevant to us by any stretch. Yes. Yep. Then the the last unfortunate part that we our last connection to mention, and it's a very unfortunate one, is Woodrow Wilson who I'm afraid emerges as the evil genius of the uh, the story. Um, I don't really go into a great deal of, of detail about it in the book, but as Winston Churchill said, it was really uh, Wilson who was responsible for pushing uh, the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns and the Wittelsbachs and all those guys off their thrones. Mm. And in so doing, paved the way for Hitler. Yeah. And then for Stalin. And that, that, I tell you, Doc, that is a reality we Americans have yet to face. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all this talk right now about an historical reckoning because of systemic racism and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's not the reckoning that really is needed. The reckoning with what Wilson did in World War I yeah. within the living memories of a few people still with us, Right. that's something that we have never addressed and I would suggest that people who really like going after writing uh, historical wrongs long after uh, the the, the uh, principles are dead, if they want something, let them go deal with that. Right. Well, I haven't read the book yet. I don't even have the book yet, but I'm going to. I don't have the book either, but I read it. <laughs> we're doing an we're doing an interview show on your book, and neither of us have the book. No, neither of us do. Uh, it's coming to Europe by uh, ship. Okay. I, I, uh, I, it's one thing I've learned is that uh, the publishing industry, while very advanced in some areas, is very, very traditional in others. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my, my books are making their stately way across the Atlantic. I hope first class. I hope yes. they're having a good time. Yes, with an Austrian uh, flag maybe over the box or something. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> the occasional bottle of champagne smashed yes, over them. exactly. <laughs> well, it's called Blessed Charles of Austria, A Holy Emperor and His Legacy by Charles Coulomb. The link to the book at Amazon is below this video. I'll ask the moderators to put it into the live chat as well. Um, order copy. Hopefully in America it gets to us faster than it gets to the author Charles in Austria. And uh, I would encourage everyone to get a devotion to Charles Cologne because especially when you read of his devotion for his family, his wife, for matrimony, all of these things. And of course, 
he is a suffering servant like his King and Lord, Jesus Christ. Is there anything you want to close up with, Charles, before we pray our Hail Mary or Ave Maria and sign off? Absolutely. I'll, I'll just say that uh, I've written quite a few books in my life, uh, many of which I was extremely pleased with, uh, particularly the subjects of them. But this book was quite unique. Uh, I was very happy to be able to see a lot of the places where he himself went and was. Um, and if I have, uh, I'm very grateful if I can expand the, uh, expand the circle of people who know him considerably more, because I honestly, he was, I could say without reservation, despite the fact that he was only effectively reigning for two years, he was to my way of thinking, without a doubt, the greatest ruler of the 20th century produced better than any of them, better than Churchill. Mm-hmm. Better than FDR, uh, better than, I mean, I can't think of better than De Gaulle. I can't think of anyone who comes close in excellence mm-hmm. to Blessed Emperor Carl. And, you know, having spent the majority of my life in that bloodiest century, it's it almost redeems it that such a man lived in it. Yes. Amen. Well, great. We'll pray the Ave Maria, and we'll pray it. Um, I think we'll we'll pray it that Blessed Carl, Blessed Charles, is elevated to the altars of the Church. Truly, is a saint. I just basically call him a saint. I'm not. Why wait? Santo <laughs> subito. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> His. I mean, the thing is, is you know, people like you know that they, they try to canonize people like. Paul the Sixth, who has no cultus, no devotion. Have you ever met anyone who has a holy card of Paul the Sixth or a shrine? No. But all over the world, there is an enormous cultus for Blessed Charles of Austria in places Dude, where he you know, never you're... reigned. You know, it's amazing how many people love this monarch. It's true. And, uh, you know, there is one other point I should make about him before I forget, and it's kind of funny. Do you realize that in beatifying him, John Paul II created his own name patron? Oh, because his name is Carl. He was, and he was named after him. He was named after the oh, emperor was, by was, his father. Was Carol Vitia named after Carl of Austria? He sure was. Ah. And so you see, when he beatified him, he created his own namesake. <laughs> I love it. Well, my my eighth child, Margaret, who sometimes appears on these videos when she runs in with her baby dolls, her uh, middle name is Carol, Carl for the same same namesake. Oh, very good. And Carol, you know, Carol's more of a girl name in English. All right, so we'll play an Ave Maria for his cult. And I, I'd ask everyone to please like this video if you're watching on YouTube. And please share this video. I think uh, this, is, this is good, wholesome, uh, things that we need to think about, read about, talk about. So please share the video and hit the share button. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. You can tag me and you can tag Charles Kulum. You can see his Twitter handle there if you want. And then if you're new, we are live. So please subscribe and hit the bell and you'll be notified uh, whenever I go live. And also you can, uh, there's all kinds of Charles Kulum videos on YouTube. The guy's really popular. So just type his name into YouTube and you'll find lots and lots of great videos, analysis, history, humor, all kinds of things. So. Charles, thanks for being with us. I'm going to pray the Ave Maria. Do you want to pray the second half 
Sure. Okay. Oremus. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora moris nostre. Amen. Blessed Carl, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching. And remember also that a great advocate of the rosary was himself, Blessed Charles of Austria. So pray your rosary every day or you're not on the team. We must pray our rosary every day as Our Lady of Fatima taught us and asked us to do. And remember our Lord Jesus Christ said you were the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. Charles Kalum, thank you and God bless. Thank you. God bless you. Take care all.